In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? You knew, did you? I think we know a little too much. But I I think as we reach the end of the lectionary's year A, where we've been praying, hymning, confessing, Eucharisting, preaching, doubting, wrestling, and limping our way through the gospel according to Matthew. It's easy uh, to believe a great collective sigh of relief. Uh, No more weeping and gnashing of teeth. We might even make uh, flip jokes uh, about hoping that Matthew is getting the dental care he deserves in heaven. Uh, funny as that may be or not, as is the case here, because we don't laugh in church, uh, it, misses, it misses a very uh, important um, point about the parables of judgment that we find in the New Testament scripture. And, and I want us to hear this. It's spelled out very helpfully by Robert Capon, and, and the point is this. Inclusion before exclusion is the chief interpretive principle of the parables of judgment. Inclusion before exclusion is the chief interpretive principle of the parables of judgment. As a general rule and in his specific parables of judgment, Jesus is at pains to show that no one is kicked out who wasn't already in. No one is kicked out who wasn't already in. In. Hell, in other words, is the refusal to let oneself be loved, to entrust ourselves to the one who entrusts himself to us, to free us from sin and death and the hell of self-enclosure, fear. Hell is the refusal of relationship that results in being closed in on oneself. Now, you've heard this story before. Uh, The one cast into the outer darkness for a wardrobe violation, Uh, the refusal to wear the freely given wedding garment, is only booted out because he won't dance to the lambs, done, finished, accomplished, safe and sound, ollie ollie all come free, music of radical grace just won't dance. The only thing that keeps the foolish virgins who ran out of oil from the wedding feast is the thought that something they do, some work they perform, other than simple trusting faith, will save them. Simple faith and trusting surrender are usually the last thing that occurs to us. That's what makes faith simultaneously so easy and a narrow gate. Self-sufficiency and self-reliance die hard, don't they? In this morning's gospel, we have a similar situation. The man, Jesus, 
going on a journey into the far country of death and trusts and trusts each of his slaves with his money. The man enters into a fiduciary relationship, fides in Latin, faith. He enters into a fiduciary, faithful relationship with each of the slaves. He places his faith in them, giving up control over how they use it. The man takes a risk, and the expectation is that the slaves respond in kind by taking a similarly faithful risk, by putting it to adventurous use for the building up of the kingdom. When the man comes back here, when Jesus rises from the dead, the first two slaves have faithfully gone about their business. They do the work they have been given to do with faith in the master, with faith in Jesus. And the master is well pleased, not, not because they earned him a profit, okay? <laughs> he really couldn't care less, but because they acted from a place of trusting, faithful relationship with the one who entrusts his very self, his very love to them. It's not so with the, the third slave. He thinks he knows that the master is a harsh man, reaping where he does not sow and gathering where he does not scatter seed. He's given the gift, but because his image of the master is a false one, a fearful one, cooked up by his own god-awful imagination, all he can do, all he can do in that fear is bury the coin in the ground. Fear wins the day as it so often does in our lives. And it's his inability to accept that he is accepted, his inability to trust in the bedrock trustworthiness of Mr. Trust himself, Jesus, that leads to the dust-up at the end of the parable. The problem with the third slave is that he has imagined himself into a place of judgment in his fear, and for this reason does not dare do anything but bury the money in the ground. And he receives treatment according to the scary story he tells himself. This is the effect, the devastating effect uh, that false images, uh, call them what they are, right? Idols. Um, this is the effect these, these idols have on us. And that's why a good part of our Christian life is about making conscious and letting go of false fear-based images of a vengeful scorekeeper, capricious God prone to fits of violence. It, it probably won't surprise you, I suppose, uh, if I were to tell you that I was a, a handful as a child. Um, but I think this is illustrative. Uh, I remember um, one 
beautiful summer day, my parents took us in the uh, pumpkin orange Volvo station wagon with vinyl seats uh, down to Kew Beach in Toronto. Um, it's a lovely park and a boardwalk along the shores of Lake Ontario. Everything was going fine until we parked. Right outside my window was an expanse of neatly manicured lawn with a sign prominently displayed that read, please keep off the grass. The trouble was, you see, that the boardwalk was on the other side of that grass. No problem for my parents, uh, but simply insurmountable for me. I refused to get out of the car. I wouldn't budge. It said, please keep off the grass after all. So we keep off the grass. And so they left me there in the hot car. <laughs> they walked freely across the grass and enjoyed a lovely time at the beach. And meanwhile, I just sat there all alone, stewing and fretting and gnashing my teeth in that hot, stuffy car because I imagined in my fear, right, that some keep-off-the-grass policeman was going to pop up out of nowhere and throw me in the clink for crossing a lawn. How much of our spiritual life is, is lived like that? So the question as we enter into Advent when all of this stuff needs to come tumbling down so that the real God can rise in our hearts, right? The question I want us to sit with until we gather at that creche for the birth of Christ in the manger of the heart is under what false, idolatrous, fear-based images of God do we labor and languish? Might it be the cold, distant watchmaker, God of our fathers, who gets the whole business running and then steps back, kind of bored? The scorekeeping, list-checking Santa Claus, who's going to find out who's naughty and nice and respond in kind, either with something from the Elven workshop or the coal fields? The God whose love is there notionally, but always a little disappointed in us? The God of conditional love? If you do this, then, 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 I'll love you. And then never comes, does it? Never enough. This is important work and no one can do it for us. These secret, unconscious, false gods are operative and Part of the work of grace is to let them come blessedly undone in the fiery love of the living God. The living God. The God we see revealed in the person of Jesus whose only desire is to draw, to drag all people into the far-flung embrace of his all-encompassing arms. The living God who stoops, kneels, washes, and feeds, who meets us in the dark of our deepest need. The living God who asks only that we place our trust in his unconditional love for us just as we are. 
the living God who has prepared a place for us in his blessed lap and only wants us to come to him for the peace and rest that only he can provide and then go with his peace breathed from our lips out there. Coming to know the living God, coming into relationship with the loving, liberating, and life-giving presence of Jesus entails the risk of faith. In the words of the parable, there's something kind of sleepy, there's something kind of wicked and lazy about remaining in the thrall, possessed, possessed actually, by images of God inherited from teachers, parents, nation, churches, those images we inherit that no longer serve. It's quite easy to remain as a result in that terrifying, lukewarm place Zephaniah so devastatingly describes as the, <laughs> and Rick read it really well, the God who will not do good, nor will he do harm. Ho-hum. takes no small amount of courage, you know, to let these diminishing stories be called into question, to let them come undone, so that the living God, the real presence of Christ available to us, by grace through faith and trust here and now, might rise like the morning star in our hearts. Get up. Get up, little girl. Talitha Kum. It takes old-fashioned courage because these habitual images are just so, so seductive. They're so familiar and so close. They're like the smell of our, our own armpit, stinky and not like the bracing freedom of Christ that freshens like the cool breeze off Lake Ontario, but ah, known comfortably homey, even if they make us sour and miserable. After I'd been sweating in the back seat of that old Volvo for a while, my parents swung back by the car, opened the door, rolled down the window, without saying a word, because you're not supposed to leave a kid in the locked car with the windows up. Uh, so, but, so they came back, unrolled the window, and what do you know? They brazenly trespassed over the lawn again <laughs> and resumed their stroll along the boardwalk. And not to be outdone, this is a contest, this is a contest of wills. I harumphed and doubled down in my imaginings of the lawn police god, poised and waiting to strike the moment my kids grazed the first blade of grass. But a little while later, they swung back around again. Rather like, rather like how God is described in our Eucharistic prayer, after all. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, he called them this never give up nag of a loving God. 
dying to love us into loving others. By this time, by this time, the breeze from the lake, the cries of the gulls, and the laughter of the other families were luring me outside the cramped confines of the car, my imagined hellmobile. Joy jostled, love lured. And there was something just so deliciously enticing about it all, something that beckoned, something that knocked on the door, something beyond my dire, stale, armpit imaginings, finally one, finally one. The divine lure was simply and finally irresistible. This time, I eased open the door and skipped, albeit gingerly and a little frightened, across the grass. What a strange, graced enticement that breeze, those gull cries, those Saturday afternoon at the beach, hoots and hollers. What a strange, graced form of courage for a seven-year-old. What a strange, graced kind of saving faith. This, yes, Jesus, Savior, thank you. Yes, Jesus, Savior, thank you. And I swear that gull poop stained boardwalk with its hot dog stands and halter-topped rollerbladers and Cindy Lopper blaring on the boom boxes. I swear that Lake Ontario boardwalk was nothing less, nothing less than the shores of Galilee itself. And I discovered, I discovered I'd never been out. I'd never been out except by refusing to be in. Amen.